0: Welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast and to what I think is one of the more interesting ideas that I've had the opportunity to share on this platform. Here is the setup. What I'm going to start with is not what I'm going to end with. The foundational idea here is known as Chekhov's gun. This is a dramatic principle. It has to do with writing or constructing a story. And as you may have guessed, the idea comes from the playwright Anton Chekhov. And In this episode, I want to look at this principle, not just as a principle of storytelling, but as a kind of theological principle, a principle that may give us more than a few insights into our own theologies and, of course, into the theologies of others. As usual, this is just an example of me playing with ideas. That's what I do here. I play with ideas, and I share them, and I'm really grateful that you do listen in uh, to hear what, what I come up with. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there's this idea referred to as a theologumenon, which is a weird and long word, but it refers to a theological statement or concept in the area of individual opinion, rather than of authoritative doctrine. And so this is really an example of what I'm doing here. Um, Chekhov's gun theologizing is a theologumenon. Um, so, please, don't take it too seriously, Of course, I'm speaking to myself here as well i-i definitely need to not take what i'm I'm saying too seriously or myself for that matter so, uh, what is Chekhov's gun? Well, it's the basic dramatic principle that states that every element in a story must be necessary and that all irrelevant elements should be removed, and it's really that simple. You keep what is essential in the story, and then you throw out what isn't. So this is how good storytelling works. It's related to the idea of foreshadowing, which I'm sure some of you know about, um, but it's not; it doesn't mean exactly the same thing as foreshadowing. More specifically, the idea of Chekhov's gun is that various dramatic elements should not appear to make false promises um, by never coming into play. And so Chekhov himself puts it in this way. Remove everything that has no relevance to the story. If you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. So that's well put by Chekhov. And he says elsewhere the the following. One must never place a loaded rifle on the stage if it isn't going to go off. It's wrong to make promises you don't mean to keep. And I think this is going to come into play quite nicely when when I get into more detail about the theological aspect of this. It's this basic idea that Every setup, everything you put into the story is going to promise something. And because we're so good at wanting to keep our promises, we may overlook the fact that what is promised by the original assumption or argument or prop, in, in this case, the metaphor of Chekhov's gun, that, that, that promise may have been misunderstood. Sometimes the idea of of Chekhov's gun is is taken to refer to an insignificant object that later on turns out to be important, and it's certainly uh, used in this way in a lot of films. Um, You'll probably see this, you know, some sort of random object that it just, it's there, but it features, um, obviously, and then later on turns out to have this immense importance. But the idea of Chekhov's gun shouldn't be taken as being that limiting. Yes, sometimes the gun in question is an object, but it can be a character trait, or an idea, or pretty much any other dramatic element, um, an environment, an action, a gesture, and so on. The principle of Chekhov's gun can, in a way, be contrasted with the idea of a red herring, which I'm, I'm sure you know about too. A red herring is something in a story that misleads or distracts from relevant or important um, information. So red herrings are usually deliberately put there by playwrights or storytellers to to get their audiences onto the wrong track, to get them to draw the wrong conclusions. You could think of this as as deliberately misleading people, but the idea is actually to create better surprise or payoff in the end. So red herrings are in a way also forms of Chekhov's gun, although in, in reverse, they're still trying to assist us to have moments of epiphany when we get there. So that's the basic idea. Um, and now that you have the basic idea, I just want to take a, uh, a moment to, to point out two observations. The first observation is that in storytelling, consistency is important. We like we like coherence in stories and that's what and coherence is is driven by consistency if we want a story to make sense to us we need the elements in it to be consistent with each other the second observation that i want to make is this this is how meaning making works this is how we make meaning uh we all have a range of cognitive biases that drive the way that we read expectation into everything so we, we will see anything and derive a sense of expectation from it. That's what Chekhov's gun is pointing to. But in terms of cognitive biases, there are various biases that actually uh, point to this. There's, there's the anchoring effect or the availability heuristic or confirmation bias. You can check out, um, Wikipedia's got fantastic um, stuff on cognitive biases. Even the so-called IKEA effect has something to do with this, this kind of setup and, of expectations and, and fulfillment. The IKEA effect, by the way, is something I'm going to come back to. Uh, so that, by the way, is something I'm setting up. So these cognitive biases highlight in different ways the fact that we depend a huge amount on the kind of setup payoff structure um, that exists in stories and in life to make sense of the world or just to make sense of anything meaning itself is dependent on this setup-payoff structure. So there's the setup, or also known as the plant, and then there's the payoff. Without the setup, the payoff isn't really a payoff. (laughs) Without the setup, we are going to struggle to find meaning. It's not just a dramatic principle, it's a hermeneutic principle. It, It can even be thought of as an existential principle. A classic example, by the way, from film film history is the, the movie Citizen Kane. The first word spoken in the film is Rosebud. Rosebud. These are the last words of a dying man, and we hear this eerie reverberating sound right at the beginning of the film. And because these words are planted so deliberately, I mean, we assume so, we have to ask, Who is this rosebud? That's the question we ask ourselves throughout the whole film. So, well, there had better be a payoff, right? Now, as you can see, this is a massive part of how we navigate the world. And in fact, you could apply this to so much of life. For instance, you could ask someone out on a date. That's the setup. And you would then get a yes or no or maybe answer. That would be the payoff. Uh, The meaning of the payoff, its positivity or its negativity or, or its ambiguity, If it's a maybe, is made coherent and sensible by the expectation set up in the setup, in the original question. So it makes sense because the idea of Chekhov's gun is a lens through which we could understand just about anything, it makes sense that it will have something of a kind of theological significance. It will have something to tell us about theology and theologizing. The Bible writers, it turns out, are classic. Classic users of this basic structure, the Bible is this library full of prophecies and allusions and images and ideas, and later writers are constantly calling back to earlier ideas as if to say, "You see that thing over there, and that you know that so-and-so wrote well, here's the payoff, here's what it really means and a classic line is is from one Corinthians fifteen uh, verse three to four which says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, which the writer Paul is, is saying as if to say, see, that set up back in Isaiah, well, this is, this is the payoff. This thing that happened, Christ dying, was always part of the plan. And the payoff is that this was not a random and meaningless thing to happen. This was always going to happen, and it was always going to be part of the plan. Of course, how we understand that is going to have a huge deal to do with how we set the whole thing up. Of course, here's where it gets really tricky. And I, I want to use Paul, I've just referred to Paul, but I want to use him as a further example of how this setup payoff structure can be played with or toyed with. So let's start with the setup. In the book of Hosea, in chapter 1, verse 10, and chapter 2, verse 23, we we read the prophet Hosea talking about something he feels God is showing him. It's all kind of eerie and mystical. And God, as Hosea records, it says that there are those who are not his people, and those people are going to be called his people. So there's going to be a kind of transference of identity. They will be called, as Hosea records, children of the living God, which is nice, right? Like, it's a really nice idea. So that is the setup. Now for the payoff. In Romans 9, verse 25 to 26, the writer Paul quotes those very same two passages from Hosea. And Paul reads the not my people as Gentiles who are then called by God to become his people. And Paul's point is that Gentiles will be made equal partners with Israel. And Paul suggests that this has been God's idea all along. And most of us would hear this and think, well, this is great. This setup payoff structure works brilliantly, and it makes perfect sense. Except there's a bit of a problem. Hosea wasn't talking about God being merciful to Gentiles, as Paul interpreted. it. If you read Hosea in context, which is not what Paul is doing, you discover that those who are referred to as not being God's people, aren't Gentiles but the rejected and stubborn people of Israel. In Hosea's mind, God is going to restore the kind of prodigal son type Israelites to himself after a bit of a rough time that they're about to go through. So Paul kind of deliberately reads Hosea out of context and thus, even by conservative hermeneutic standards, is kind of wrong um, in his approach. I love this. Um, Paul reads the scriptures out of context, Haha. <laughs> so like Bible scholars everywhere, um, conservative Bible scholars are probably freaking out. But that is—I mean—I'm just pointing out something that's very simple, and you have to do so much hermeneutical gymnastics to actually make it make like be a literal reading of of the context because it's not. Let's take another idea that Paul writes about. In the first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 10, verses 1 to 22, Paul looks at the story of the Israelites when they were wandering about in the desert. So this is famous Exodus-style stuff. And Paul recalls two times when God provided water to the Israelites from a rock. This is a kind of payoff of a scene set up in Exodus 17, which records that God provides water from a rock at the beginning of the Israelites' time in the desert. And then there's also a bit in Numbers 20, where God provides water from a rock right at the end of Israel's time in the desert. Paul was aware, at least as a number of more recent scholars say, that there were some Jewish interpreters who claimed claimed that those two rocks, um, the rock from Exodus 17 and the rock from Numbers 20, were in fact the same rock. Of course, this makes no sense, given that these two rocks are in totally different places. So those same Jewish interpreters decided that for this to make sense, for these two rocks to in fact be the same rock, that rock would actually have to have followed those Israelites around, (laughs) which is so great. It was like their very own rock mascot or their very own rock groupie. I kid you not, this is really there, right? Like you can check it out. So then if we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is citing these these Old Testament scriptures, or Hebrew Bible scriptures, to be more technically correct, and then Paul says, here is the payoff. That rock that was following the Israelites around wasn't just a rock, it was Jesus, like in a way, literally Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is the spiritual rock that followed the Israelites in the desert. You can look all over the place in the Old Testament for a mention of this idea of a rock following the Israelites around, and you're not going to find it. It's not there. The The payoff and the setup aren't completely aligned apart from sort of some extra biblical source. So the result, basically, is that there is a huge gaping discontinuity here. The reason is this. Paul followed the ancient Jewish hermeneutic principle which works with a minimum of revelation and a maximum of interpretation. Isn't that such a cool hermeneutic principle? Like trying to figure out not what just what things meant in their original context but trying to figure out how they work now for us now. This may be alarming to you especially if you come from a more conservative background but this was the hermeneutic approach that Paul used. And I think it's because Paul knew something about Chekhov's gun. Well, at least implicitly because obviously Chekhov hadn't been born yet, although maybe I could hermeneutic like Chekhov back into the text, but anyway, so he he knew something about this principle of setup and payoff that we may easily overlook. I'll put it simply and then I'll explain. What Paul knew is that life is not a closed text and neither is the canon of scripture right so life is not a closed text when chekhov came up with that principle of interpretation he was thinking about storytelling in a very limited way but the bible is not just one story it's it's overlapping stories many stories many different time periods ma- many different authors there's a way that all of these things overlap and play with each other that is something that a single story cannot do. It's, it's partly why the Bible is so ludicrously interesting when you look at it as, as a, a collection of texts that need to be interpreted. So the basic idea here is that Chekhov's gun is about constructing closed systems called narratives. And in closed systems, the meanings we derive need to all fit perfectly together like a puzzle. The setups and payoffs in Chekhov's dramas all work neatly and coherently and with limited ambiguity. But this is not how theology works, because theology is working with something that we all know to be true. Life is not a play. Life is like a play, perhaps, but life is not a play. Life is not a closed text. And there are setups that have no payoffs, and there are payoffs that we miss because we didn't understand or notice the setup. And there are influences, and there is intertextuality. And we should be careful, I think, to be too rigid. And maybe we need to be careful not to be too serious. Uh, to we need to hold things lightly, right? And the Bible itself, no matter how rigidly we may want to treat it, is just not a closed text there is this wonderful book. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, It's by Christian Smith, and it is called The Bible Made Impossible. You should read it, by the way, especially if you have some questions about biblical hermeneutics, um, which, you know, in simple terms, biblical interpretation, and this contemporary disease called literalism. Literalism is something that none of the Bible writers would have thought a good idea. It does not feature in that ancient world, and it's so weird that we think it's an actual legitimate way to interpret things, or at least that it's legitimate to interpret things only in that way. I've just referred to two examples from Paul that clearly do not follow the principle of being literal, or even the principle of reading things in context. So Paul clearly had never let this idea of literalitis cross his mind. Anyway, the book that I'm talking about, The Bible Made Impossible, Christian Smith writes the following. He says that the Bible functions something like a particular enormous jigsaw puzzle with a huge number of pieces. This is a very unusual puzzle though. Different pieces can be fitted together in different ways to form distinctly different patterns. Nearly all of them are portraits of people. One is of a scowling old man, another of a sweet young girl, yet another a pregnant woman, and still the fourth is a tired-looking police officer. The puzzlers discover that many of the pieces that make one portrait can be rearranged differently, with some pieces removed and others added to make other portraits. Not only that, but in any given picture, enough of the pieces fit together to fill in most of the image. But not all of it. Every picture, no matter how well it is put together, still has some missing puzzle pieces. To put it in in the terms that we're talking about, often there are setups without conclusions, there are pieces that just don't fit. And I think this is a really beautiful image, and it points to something profound about our desire for meaning. We will build the puzzle in the way that makes sense to us. We will start somewhere and we'll end up with the picture of, say, that policeman, because that's our starting point. That's how we've set the whole thing up. But sometimes what happens is we're going to overlook the fact that our setups and payoffs do not account for the whole thing. Or at least sometimes what happens is that we arrive at a particular payoff without understanding that it's not really an explanation for the setup, it may not necessarily provide the closure that the setup set up for us. It turns out meaning is just too complicated a thing to be neatly reduced to the principle of Chekhov's gun. Which brings me to the payoff of that earlier setup of the idea of the IKEA effect. The IKEA effect is a cognitive bias in which consumers place a disproportionately high value on products they partially created. We think things, naturally, things that we make or discover are much more significant than they really are. And here's the thing, I think this refers to theology too. We, each of us, all of us, get this ludicrously huge box of parts known as Bible. And through interacting with people and traditions and books and ideas, we build this thing. We build our theology. We create our own systematic theologies and our own interpretations, and this is thrilling and wonderful and it has a bit of irritation at times but it's it's a great thing to do but this theology which amounts more or less to how we understand god and the world and ourselves is much more complicated than even the most complex ikea product and we may forget that we played a part in its construction that we too arrived at payoffs that were not set up the way we thought they were and maybe we need to gently patiently calmly call the interpretations of those payoffs and maybe even those setups into question maybe we need to ask a few questions what was the setup have i understood it correctly what what have i gotten wrong maybe i have gotten something wrong right i've i've been amazed at the journey that i've been on and i think in some some days i think about my adolescent self and how he might have thought of what i believe today and he might have looked at me a bit strangely and thought like where did you come from like how how did you get there right i certainly didn't know back then that most of my adult life would involve reconstructing my theology from the ground up i had no way to predict that i would be questioning every setup but it's been an amazing journey theology like life is a work in progress there will always be setups and payoffs, and there are, and they're great. We need to pay attention because it's a great journey. But what I've discovered is that the whole thing is just too complicated to reduce to our limited perspectives on those setups and payoffs, because I think the real theology is not just in what we think about stuff, but in how we participate in the drama of life and in the drama of the love of God. This is not, by the way, to say that any setup will do or that any payoff will do. I'm not discrediting, like, theologizing in general. I think it's a vital activity. I do it all the time. Um, Paul was, of course, like an example of a hermeneutical maverick, but he was still very deliberate and careful in his interpretations. He was subversive, obviously, but he never did anything just willy-nilly there are still very definitely better and worse ways of understanding various theological setups and payoffs. But my point is this. How we set things up, how we understand the setup, no matter how complex it turns out to be, is going to deeply and profoundly affect the payoff. And my feeling is that a lot of people have major, major struggles and squabbles with theology because they've set the whole thing up wrong started with what apparently makes sense or with what should make sense given their own assumptions but closer examination would reveal that it doesn't. Of course I have no idea where most of you are um, in terms of your own theological journey in terms of what you've figured out but at the very least I want to encourage you to think about how your theology is set up. If it's set up without God, well, that's going to have some serious influence on the payoffs you notice. If it's set up with the God of love itself, well, that's going to result in a perception of a love that smiles and shines through all things. If God is more about justice than love, well, hell is probably going to feature much more strongly in your theology. If your theology begins in Genesis 3, with sin at the center, that's going to say something very different from if your theology begins in Genesis 1 which has goodness and peace and harmony at the center, where we start is going to affect where we end. But of course, it's not going to determine it. So there is some flexibility here, which is really good. And that's kind of what I want to point out here, is there is always a bit more flexibility than we may necessarily perceive. So the idea that I want to propose is simply that we begin again. Let's go back to the setup, let's figure out where this journey begins, and then maybe we'll have a better idea of where it will take us.